0: I have heard of the church here for a number of years. I've known about your work. Everything I've heard has been good and it's good to be with you and to have the experience of getting to know many of you here. I appreciate brother uh, Doug Smith and the work that he does. Glad to have the opportunity to be associated with him. Several others here that I know. I've known Rob Baker since I was just a little boy Actually, Rob and Mallory were uh, students at Fried Hardeman. My wife and I live at Henderson, where uh, Fried Hardeman is located. And uh, Rob led the singing quite a number of times for us there. We appreciate them very much and their family. And I see Matt Vega over here, good friend, and Brother Cackleman and others probably too numerous to name, but it's just good to be here, good to be with you. I've had the opportunity to be in the office of several uh, well known figures in American government. I've been in the office of two governors of the state of Tennessee by their invitation. And uh, I've known a U.S. Senator or two. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to be invited to eat in the Senate dining room in Washington, D.C. And I know that may sound a little bit elegant to you, but I want to tell you that the main dish on the menu. In the Senate dining room in Washington is uh, bean soup. And I had that while I was there in uh, Washington. But here's the reason that I mention that. Having known some governors and senators and well-known politicians and even a few entertainers over the years, I have to say to you that what I enjoy most in the world is association with members of the body of Christ. And all through the years that I was an attorney, and then for the last 30 years, I've been a judge in the court system of the state of Tennessee, I have continued to preach, I've continued to work with congregations, hold meetings, do lectureships, various things of that kind. And one reason is because I enjoy so much the rich contact with those of like precious faith. So I do not uh, hesitate to say to you, it is a joy for me to be here. This is what I love. I enjoy being with you, I enjoy getting to know you, and I love the opportunity to study from the Word of God. And I want us to continue what we began in our earlier session. And let me say that a great deal of what I'm going to discuss during this particular uh, lesson will be historical in nature. But as I said earlier, it will tie in with things that we know from the Word of God. And I'm going to take up right where we left off at the earlier hour, tie it into that history and bring it forward, and I think maybe help us to understand some things that have happened in religious history and to understand something about why there are so many churches in our world. I want to commence by referring to some verses that deal with what I call the seed principle. And the seed principle, very simply, is that a seed produces after its kind. If you plant corn, you don't expect to harvest watermelons. Corn is going to produce corn. Watermelon seed will produce watermelons. A seed will produce after its kind. And on a spiritual level, the seed is the Word of God. Luke 8 and verse 11. Are as stated in the first chapter of First Peter, down beginning about verse 23, seeing that you have purified your souls in your obedience to the truth, let us wo- love one another from a pure heart fervently, being begotten again not of corruptible seed, but by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. So the word of God is the spiritual seed. And as you plant watermelon seed and harvest watermelons, you plant uh, corn and get corn. So in a spiritual realm, we need to plant the seed, which is the word of God. And if it is not mixed with human creeds or the doctrines of men, the word of God is going to produce Christians. And the church is going to be the church that you read about in the New Testament. It doesn't matter when that is done you're going to have the seed producing after its kind. So I want us to remember that as we proceed through our study and our lesson today. And the things that I'm going to talk about now from history are to me some of the most fascinating things that I have ever heard or ever learned. And I hope it will be as interesting to you as it is to me. You notice that I have up here on the board the Protestant Reformation. And let me take just a moment to introduce that idea and to define that term. The word Protestant comes from the word protest. And the word Reformation comes from the word reform. So what is involved in the Protestant Reformation is that there was a protest against the corruptions that had developed in the Catholic Church. And as a result of that protest, Protestant, there was initiated a series of reforms, and thus the word reformation, whereby an effort was made to correct the abuses that had developed in the apostate church. So that is what we mean by the Protestant Reformation. To tie that into the lesson that we had during the earlier hour, we talked then about how that when the church of the Lord was established on the day of Pentecost, as revealed in the second chapter of the book of Acts, there began to be shortly after the establishment of the church, warnings and admonitions that were given that there was going to be a falling away from God's original plan. In other words, God gave the church, God sent the Holy Spirit, the church was constituted, Jesus died to establish the church, shed his blood for it, Acts 20 and verse 28, the church came into being, and almost immediately thereafter, divinely inspired men began to warn, take heed unto yourselves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. In the last days, men shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. So there are many warnings that are given in the first century that there was going to be a falling away from the truth. And we went through that in more detail in our earlier lesson to show how that there was a corruption of the organization of the church. From a plurality of elders serving over a congregation to one man, one man then over several churches, Ultimately, there were two great powers, Rome and Constantinople. They divided because each of them claimed to be preeminent. Rome actually was the one that became uh, preeminent. And uh, you had the establishment of the Roman church. And there were many, many departures from the Word of God. The very thing that had been prophesied, the very thing that we were told would occur, you had a substitution of sprinkling for immersion, which was Bible baptism. You had uh, substitution of infants being sprinkled as baptism instead of uh, believers, those who were adults and understood the Word of God as presented in the New Testament. There were many, many other changes. There was holy water. There was a the sign of the cross. And many people might be surprised to learn that it was through Catholicism and the apostasy that instrumental music was introduced. You don't find it anywhere in the New Testament. You don't find it in the New Testament church. You do not find it in the first 400 years after the church was established. And you do not find it in general use until about a thousand years after the establishment of the New Testament church. And that's why we do not have it today. I'll talk more about some of those things in our last session today at one o'clock. But I just mentioned that today to give us a survey, an overview ...of what is involved in church history. There was the New Testament church. Then there was the falling away. Then there was the development of the man of sin... ...and the establishment of the Roman church... ...known now as Roman Catholicism. And then there was the Protestant Reformation. It came about as a result of that falling away... ...that we talked about in the earlier hour. And what happened was that men finally began to realize that there had been a departure from the New Testament. Uh, Men, you know, you don't always see those departures as they come because they're slow and they're gradual and they creep up and they just take time to really manifest themselves. So men did not see all of these things as they were occurring. But as time went by, there came to be a realization of these departures from God's original plan. And what happened in this period known as the Protestant Reformation is that men began to see the corruptions. They began to realize that there were abuses of the divine plan, that there had been a departure from what God had originally given. And so they wanted to reform that. They protested those corruptions. They called for a reformation to occur within Catholicism. And that is the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. We'll talk about that uh, in greater particularity as we move along here. But i just give you that as a sign of what occurred, how it occurred, why it occurred. So you have the New Testament church, then you have the apostasy from the truth, then you have the development of the apostasy into the Roman church, you have the development of and the fruition of the prophecy about the man of sin and the son of perdition who came into power and claimed to be head over all the church. So that goes on for a number of years and many, many changes transpire during that period of time. Things that we still see around us today. Changes that came into being during the dark ages we call them. And uh, in some places are still being observed even in our day. Now, if you notice on this uh, chart about the Protestant Reformation, you will see in the upper left-hand corner that I have a date. I'd like you to remember that date. It happens to be important, and we're coming right upon it for that matter. Uh, The date is October 31. We call that Halloween. But I want you to remember it for another reason. October 31, 1500... And 17. 1517, that is the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And even though there had been some efforts prior to Martin Luther, Martin Luther is the one who really commenced the Protestant Reformation in full. Now, to understand that, I need to emphasize that Martin Luther was not a critic of Catholicism from the outside. He was an insider. He was a member of the Catholic Church. He was a priest and a professor in the Catholic Church. And he lived in a little town in Germany, called Wittenberg. Now, if you saw that written down in uh, English, we would probably call it Wittenberg because it's spelled with a W, W W-I-T-T-E-N-B-E-R-G. But in Germany, they pronounce a W as though it were a V, and so the real name of it is Wittenberg. One day, Martin Luther was walking down the streets of Wittenberg. By the way, I've walked down the streets of Wittenberg. And he found one of his members drunk. Drunk in the street. And Luther was outraged and he said to him, Sir, I will see you in confession. And the man said, I don't have to come to confession. I have bought an indulgence from John Tetzel. John Tetzel was also a priest, and he was traveling throughout Germany selling indulgences. An indulgence was a release from the temporary consequences of sin. Meaning that if one bought an indulgence, and by the way, buying an indulgence was With money. John Tetzel went around through Germany and he said, As soon as the silver hits the coffer or the tray, the souls of your loved ones are released from purgatory. I'll tell you in a moment the reason why Tessler was selling those indulgences. But for the moment, just remember that he was selling indulgences. This man had bought it with money. And he said, I don't have to come to confession. Luther was so incensed by this. The idea that a man could buy his way out of sin. That he sat down and he wrote out 95 criticisms of the Catholic Church. Bear in mind now, he is a professor in the University of Wittenberg. He is a Catholic priest. He was the minister or pastor or priest of the local church. And so he is an insider here. He's not an outsider criticizing Catholicism. And he wrote out 95 observations or propositions that he found false with the Catholic Church. And these have become known in history as the 95 Theses. Luther took those down to the door of the castle church. There are two Catholic churches in Wittenberg. One was called the city church, Stadtkirche, and the other was called the castle church, Schlosskirche. The castle church is where all the notices were posted. Luther went down to the castle church and nailed his 95 theses to the door of the castle church. That's where they would be read and seen by others. And in those 95 theses, he challenged the corruptions that he saw, which had developed within the Catholic church. And primarily, he attacked this idea of selling indulgences. Now, how did that happen to be, and why was John Tetzel traveling around in Germany at this time, selling these indulgences? If you were here at the earlier hour, you may remember that I had a picture up here on the screen of St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome. The pope at that time was Pope Leo X. The 10th. Leo X was trying to raise money to rebuild St. Peter's Cathedral. And he commissioned Tetzel to go throughout Germany selling indulgences to raise the money to rebuild St. Peter's Cathedral. I'm just curious now. You don't fail if you don't answer this. How many here have ever had the opportunity to go to Rome and to visit St. Peter's Cathedral? Several in this audience have been there. And I have been there, my wife and I. I could not help but think when I visited St. Peter's Cathedral. Oh, I saw the beauty of it. I saw that it's one of the most imposing structures in all of the world, but I could not help but think as I walked through that beautiful structure, this is what started the Protestant Reformation. Pope Leo X was trying to raise money to build that great structure, and he sent John Tetzel throughout Germany to sell those indulgences. That infuriated Martin Luther. Martin Luther wrote out his 95 theses and nailed them to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. And the matter began to spread among others and it spread all across Germany, eventually all across Western Europe. And the Reformation became a reality. People apparently were observing the thing that Luther had observed they were seeing the same flaws. They were seeing the same abuses. They were seeing the same corruptions that Luther wrote about in the 95 Theses. And when it began to be spread abroad and others to know about it and hear about it, they began to rebel against all of these corruptions that had developed in the Catholic Church. And that is what started the protest or the Protestant Reformation, that is the effort to reform the Catholic Church of all of these abuses that had developed over the years. And so I want us to talk a little about that, and I'd like to give you a little history. This is a picture which I took. The man that you see there in the center is a guide in Germany. He is lecturing to a group of German tourists there, but he is wearing the garb of a university professor at the time of Luther. So he's dressed as Luther would have dressed when he was teaching in the university. And so I could not resist walking up behind this group, snapping a picture of this man talking as he's dressed like Martin Luther would have been. But the most important thing about this picture, if you notice the door behind him, that Is the very door where Luther nailed the 95 theses. Well, I should back up a minute and say that is where the door was. These doors that you see in the picture are made of brass. The old doors burned. They were made of wood, the ones that Luther actually nailed the 95 theses to. But the opening there is exactly the same. They just put brass doors in there. So this is the very place on October 31, 1517, where Luther nailed the 95 Theses and began the Protestant Reformation. By the way, is today October 28? I took that picture on October 28, 2007. So that was 490 years after Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door right there. And since today is October the 28th and just a few days from now will be October 31, that will be exactly 495 years since Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. By the way, I want to tell you, I've loved to study church history, and some of the things we're going to get into here today I think will be of interest to all of you. It just totally fascinates me, and it helps me to understand so many things going on in the religious world. But I never thought I would get to visit Wittenberg, the place where the Reformation began. And the reason is Wittenberg is in what we call East Germany. That was behind the Iron Curtain after World War II. You remember after World War II, Russia claimed the eastern part of Germany, and the United States claimed the western part of Germany, and Berlin was split. It's in East Germany, but it was split so that there was a American section and a Russian section or communist section of Berlin, and you remember the Berlin Wall ran right down the center of Berlin, and the people over there in East Germany could not come over to the western side. Some of them were shot trying to climb the wall. A lot of history here even up in the modern times. But we could not go over into East Germany. We could not visit over there. And I'd always wanted to go to Wittenberg. I wanted to study more. I wanted to see the place. I wanted to understand better about how the Protestant Reformation began. And I thought I'll never get to go because it's behind the Iron Curtain. It's in East Germany. We're not allowed to travel over there. But you remember when President Reagan went over there and made a speech in uh, Berlin. And he stood at the Brandenburg Gate and the... Berlin Wall was behind him over there. And some of you young people might be too young to remember this, but I know many of you will recall this. Reagan said, Mr. Gorbachev, who was the ruler of Russia at that time, tear down this wall. And you know, the Berlin Wall, not long afterwards, came down. The Iron Curtain came down. Russia lost much of its power and influence And finally we had the opportunity to go over into East Germany. So I had the opportunity finally to go over into East Germany and to visit Wittenberg where all of these things occurred that I'm speaking about here. So this is where the Protestant Reformation began. Here I am standing in this picture. I don't know how well you can see that structure behind me there, but that is actually Luther's pulpit. It's not in the church. This is in a museum now in Wittenberg and the museum is located inside the house where Luther lived. So I'm inside Luther's house there and they took the original pulpit out of the church and they brought it down and put it in this museum and I walked up to it and touched it and thought about it and had a picture taken there in front of it and you'll notice it's up high. It's over my head there. The reason is the pulpit in ancient times. Now, I don't have any trouble getting up these steps. I have a little trouble getting down. But I don't have any trouble getting up. But I wish you'd see how they got into the pulpit over there in Europe back in those days. There was a spiral staircase that led up into the pulpit. And the priest was well above the congregation, and he went up those steps behind there and climbed up into the pulpit. So Luther stood in that high position in that little box there at the top over my head, and that was Luther's pulpit. So uh, this is the actual pulpit from which he delivered over 3,000 sermons in the city church. This is Luther's house. I was inside that house in that picture where it showed his pulpit. This was provided to him by the governor of that section of Germany. Luther became very popular and was celebrated, and the ruler provided him this house in which to live. And the doors down there that you see on the left at the ground level are original. And they were presented to Luther by his wife. He married after he left the priesthood. And his wife, by the way, had been a nun, so she left the Catholic Church, and they married Catherine von Bora, and she gave those doors to Luther as a present. So those are called Luther's doors. But that is the house in which Luther lived. You know, one thing about those people over in Europe, they preserved their historical antiquities. If that had been us in America, we would have torn that house down long ago and put a McDonald's there. But over there, they preserve their antiquities. And it's one thing that makes it so fascinating to go over there and to visit because uh, they have buildings that are still in use that have been there for a thousand years. And this was Luther's house back in the 1500s. And we had the opportunity to go in that house and visit there. Now, this uh, is an oak tree. It's called Luther's oak. My wife is standing in the foreground of this picture. And the reason that we took a picture of this oak is because Luther nailed those 95 theses to the door in 1517. That spread like wildfire all across Germany and then Western Europe and the Reformation was born. But by 1521, the Pope had excommunicated Luther, that is, read him out of the Catholic Church. And the Pope sent his decree of excommunication to Luther at Wittenberg, where Luther lived. And at this very spot where you see the oak tree, Luther burned the decree of the Pope. That showed that he was not intimidated by what the Pope had done by excommunicating him. And that's not the original oak tree, but it's been replanted each time one of the old oak trees died. So that is the exact spot where Luther came near the gate of the city and burned the decree of the Pope that excommunicated him from the Catholic Church. This is not the pulpit from which Luther preached. Luther preached at what is called the city church in Wittenberg, but this is the pulpit, you can see how elaborate it is, that is in the castle church. That's the church where he went down and nailed the 95 Theses. And in this one, you can see the spiral staircase there behind the pulpit where the priest would walk up those steps and then he would speak from that elevated position. So this is the pulpit of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. And if you look right below that pulpit, do you see those yellow flowers down there on the ground level? And the stone... Next to those, that is Luther's tomb. Luther is buried inside the castle church underground beneath the pulpit. And uh, we went in and walked up to uh, Luther's tomb and to the pulpit of the castle church. And this is a picture of me standing there at Luther's tomb. So this is where Luther was buried in Wittenberg, Germany. This is the other church in Wittenberg. I mentioned the Castle Church where he nailed the 95 Theses. This is what was called the City Church. And this is the one where Luther actually was the preacher. And uh, my wife and I were walking around and observing all of these historical sites. And you can imagine I was just drinking all of it in. I was so interested in what was going on there. And we went in this church and they were getting ready to have a service in English. They had a, it's a Lutheran church now, by the way, so is the castle church. And uh, they had a Lutheran minister there from California who was going to speak. So we went in and sat out and listened and heard the man speak in English in this church where Luther was the preacher. The city church in Wittenberg. This is the main street of Wittenberg. I've wondered as I walked down that street where that drunkard was. I know Luther was walking down the street when he saw that fellow that was drunk, said he didn't have to come to confession because he had bought an indulgence from John Tetzel. And the building you see in the center down at the far end of that street is the uh, spire on the castle church. I'm standing not far from where Luther lived. And I could just imagine when I was there, Luther leaving his house down at the end of the street where I was standing when I took this picture Walking down this street and the castle church being down at the end of that street. But this is the city of Wittenberg as it is today. Uh, This is not in Germany or Wittenberg. I put it in there because another man that was active in the Reformation was a man named John Huss. And he was in Prague, Czechoslovakia, which is now known as the Czech Republic. And this is the church where John Huss preach. By the way, we walked around inside that church and they had uh, placards up on the wall and on those plaques they had quotations from John Huss. You would be amazed to read what John Huss stood for. We walked around there and read those and we were just in awe. It said the Bible and the Bible only is our guide and we uh, believe in the Holy Scriptures and It was things that you and I might say today. This is what these men were proclaiming back in that day as part of the Reformation when they were trying to reform the abuses that had developed in the Roman Catholic Church. This is the town hall, or we would say the city hall, in Wittenberg, Germany. And you see a statue right out in the very front of the city hall or the town hall. That is a statue of Luther. They still honor Luther very highly over there in Germany. Well, I want to tell you just a little history about this and not try to cover everything that we could say about it, but just enough to give us an idea of what happened. Luther nailed those 95 theses to the door, as I mentioned a little earlier, showed you the door where that actually occurred. He made his criticisms of Roman Catholicism. It spread. Other people said, well, I have thought that. I have felt the same way. I have seen that. I've understood that. And so the whole idea began to spread and spread and spread all the way across Germany. Luther wrote a song that spread all the way across the land. We still sing it today. A mighty fortress is our God. That's written by Martin Luther. And it was written in that day. And it was sung as a part of the Reformation. And so all of this began to occur all across Europe. So the Catholic Church knew they had to do something. And they challenged Luther to a debate. And they selected one of the best known doctors of the church, a man by the name of John, or as they in Germany would say, Johann Eck, E-C-K. Dr. Eck was one of the most famous men in, in Germany at that time and one of the greatest defenders of the Catholic Church. He was chosen to represent the Catholic Church in the debate with Martin Luther. And Luther went to meet Dr. Eck in debate and Dr. Eck began to talk about all of the councils of the church. He began to talk about all of the teachings of the Pope. He began to talk about all of the traditions that they had stood for. And Luther came back and responded to him in something that may not seem strange to us today, but it was quite revolutionary in Luther's day. He came back and said, I care not what the councils have said. I care not what the traditions are. I care not what the Pope has taught. If I cannot find it in the Word of God, he said, my conscience will not be bound by it. And this is considered one of the greatest principles of the Reformation. That Luther said, the Bible and the Bible only is our guide. But now Dr. Eck was no fool. So he came back after Luther had presented that, as revolutionary as it was, and he had an answer for it. Oh, he said, Dr. Luther says that the Bible and the Bible only is our guide. But he said, who understands the Bible? He said, only the Pope. Only the clergy, only the priest can interpret the Bible. And so Luther came back with the second great principle of the Reformation, and that was that the common man can read and understand the Bible for himself without the intervention of the Pope and the priesthood. And so out of his debates with Dr. Eck came the two salient principles of the Reformation— The Bible and the Bible only is our guide and our authority. And on the other hand, that the common man, if he's given the Bible, you know they didn't even have the Bible in their language. The Bible was in Latin. It was not in the language of the people. It was only in the language that the priesthood had studied. The people did not have the opportunity. And one of the things that Luther did, he was hidden away in a place called Wartburg Castle in Germany, My wife and I have been there, and I've walked into the very room where Luther translated the Bible into German, the language of the common man. I've stood there and seen where he worked by the light that came in through the window. And oh, what a feeling of emotion that engendered to think that here is a man that sat down and translated the Bible so that it could be read by the common man. He unchained it from the pulpits of the Catholic Church and from the prison of the Latin language that the common man could not understand. And the Bible was given to the people. This is the work of Martin Luther, one of the greatest influences throughout history of the church. And so it was a reformation effort. It was a time to reform the abuses, to correct the uh, abuses that had occurred in Roman Catholicism. But now I want to tell you what happened. I mentioned a little earlier today that we've we've been asking the question, where do all these churches come from? For many years we've been told that there are at least 400 different religious denominations in the United States. But now today we have many independent groups. Some of them, is just one church of that kind. People have established a congregation and it's of a different kind than all the others. And so they say if you count all of the individual groups, all of the independent groups, it's more like 20,000 different churches. 400 established churches denominational bodies. And I want you to think for a moment how different that is from what we read in the New Testament. Our Lord said upon this rock I will build my church. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4, the Apostle Paul said, there is One body. And in the same Ephesian letter, he said, God hath given Christ to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. The church is the body. The body is the church. Paul says, there is one body. I don't know how to sugarcoat that. I know it offends the world, but it's what an inspired apostle of our Lord said. And you compare that in the New Testament, I will build my church. There is one body. The body is the church. Compare that with 400 established religious denominations and among all of the independent organizations maybe 20,000 different kinds throughout the United States of America today. Where did they all come from? Here's the truth I want you to remember. Over and above every other detail that I've given in this study. Not one of them existed. Not one of them existed. Before October 31, 1517. Except for the Roman Catholic Church. Headquartered in Rome and the Greek Orthodox Church. From Constantinople. Drive down the street. Look at all these different churches out here. Put it in your head you're not 500 years old yet. 495, some of them, not all of them. Not even 500 years yet. And I hope you will think about this. Your friends, my friends, our neighbors, our kinfolks, members of our family, most of them out here that are members of these various denominations, They have no idea about the history of their own church. Many of these good people out here that are members of this denomination, that denomination, another denomination, many of them have no idea that that body has not been in existence since Christ. It has not been in existence since the apostles of Christ. It has not been in existence since the first century. It has not been in existence since New Testament times. It has not been in existence even 500 years. From Luther came the Lutheran church. I bought a little book in Luther's house about the life of Martin Luther. And I was reading that and I came across this statement. I know it's authentic because, as I say, I bought the book from the Luther Museum, the very house where Luther lived. And Luther said to those that were following him, do not call yourselves Lutherans. Who am I, said Luther, this stinking bag of maggots? That the people of God should be called by my unworthy name he begged people not to call themselves Lutherans and so what are they called today Lutherans over in Switzerland there was another leader after Luther came along in the 1500's by the name of John Calvin he was born in France but uh, primary work was in Geneva in Switzerland from John Calvin came several of the denominations that exist today John Calvin and John Knox are considered the founders of the Presbyterian church but many uh, Baptist churches follow the doctrines of Calvin Uh, he uh, taught that Christ did not die for everyone by the way Uh, not all of those that follow Luther or Calvin in some respects, follow him in that regard. But he taught a doctrine called the limited atonement, which was that Jesus did not die for everyone. He only died for the elect, and everyone that he died for will be saved, and the ones that he didn't die for are going to be damned eternally regardless of what they do. That was part of the teaching of Calvin. That's still taught by a number of churches today and it was Calvin that taught once saved, always saved and there are several churches that are Calvinistic in that regard, that's where that doctrine came from, but here's what I want us to see here is the Catholic church an apostasy from the original church, here are those that saw the corruptions in Catholicism and they wanted to reform the Catholic church and they began to set about to try to do that but as a result they established these various denominations Lutheran, Presbyterian Baptists, Methodists, and so on down the line. All of them established out of the initial efforts of Martin Luther that began in 1517. So you had Calvin down in Switzerland, and then you had Henry Eighth, who was the king of England and had six wives and who lived over in London, and he broke away from the Catholic Church because they would not allow him to divorce his wife and marry the woman that he wanted to marry by the name of Anne Boleyn. And so as a result of that, he broke away from Catholicism and proclaimed himself the head of the Church of England, not the Pope, but Henry VIII, declared himself the head of the Church of England, and thus began what was called the Church of England, And in the United States of America, it is called the Episcopal Church. One, two, three, four, five. What is this? This is the beginning of denominationalism. And that is why you can see that I think this history is so vital because I see good people out here. Sincere people, earnestly thinking that they're doing the will of God, that are members of these organizations, none of which, outside of Catholicism and Greek Orthodoxy, none of which are yet 500 years old. Most people don't realize it came about as a result of the Protestant reformation commenced by Luther opposing the abuses that had developed in Roman Catholicism trying to reform those abuses what i want us to remember and we'll we'll complete the thought at our last session uh, after our lunch i hope you'll stay for that I, I always dread talking to people right after they've had one of these big meals at church. Everybody's full and gets a little warm in the auditorium and their eyelids get a little bit heavy and their head wobbles around. Oh, I'm going to have a job at one. But I want you to come back and let me try to do it. Because I want to complete the circle here. I want to complete the idea here. We saw at 9 o'clock the great apostasy, how there was a falling away from God's original plan, how it developed into what we know as Roman Catholicism, how it developed into uh, the existence of a pope who claimed to be the universal head of all of the church. We have seen that Luther began to rebel against the abuses in Catholicism and started what is known as the Protestant Reformation. And as a result of the labors of Luther, we have seen how the denominations came into existence, one after another after another, until we have the great multiplicity of them that we have today. And we want to complete that by talking about what is the solution to all of this. But I want to bring these remarks to a close. I hope this history has been interesting to you. I think it is so vital, so important. I, I have to say, I really appreciate all these young people that are seated down here at the front. These are things a lot of our own young people have never heard or never realized. And it's so important for us to recognize the Lord established the church. Jesus said, I will build my church. What has happened to the Lord's church in all of this? The falling away from the original plan of God emerged into Catholicism. The Protestant Reformation came about to correct all of those abuses, but all it did was start other churches and they have just multiplied over the years. What happened in all of this to the church? Jesus said, I will build. That's the one I want to be in. How can I do it? We'll talk about that more fully later. But for now, let me say you have been a magnificent audience. I've talked about history which is supposed to be dull and you all have stayed right with me all the way through. Thank you. I appreciate your interest. And I do think it is so important. And I want to conclude this part of our study, this aspect of our study by saying had you ever thought about Not being a part of a human organization. Something that was established by some man somewhere. With some creed. But just being a simple New Testament Christian. On the day of Pentecost, Peter said to the inquiring multitude, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission or the forgiveness of your sins. Verse 41 says, They that gladly received his word were baptized, and there were added unto them that day about 3,000 souls. I'm not going to ask you to do anything other than what people did on the day of Pentecost. That's it. Hear the word. Believe it with all of your heart. Repent of sins, confess Jesus as Lord and Master, be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. And then endeavor to live faithfully to his cause all the days of your life. If you're willing to do that, the opportunity is yours, even now, while together we stand to sing.